Do you like coffee? Yes. For centuries, humans have searched in vain for a way to reliably unmask liars. Do you dance? Yes. But then, in 1920s California, a cop with a PhD invented a machine that seemed to peer directly into the human mind. Did you steal the money? No. The apparatus was a tangled mess of tubing and wires, glass bulbs and rubber appendages. A stylus moved across charcoal blackened paper, tracing out the patterns of deception. Hmm, well, the test shows that you stole the money. Did you spend it? No. Its technical name was the cardio-pneumopsychogram. Do you know where the money is? No. The press soon rechristened it as the lie detector, and headlines screamed that it could lay bare the hidden mind. Look, the test shows that you stole. Okay, it was me. I confess. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Patented. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. This is the third in our little mini-series we're doing about the history of forensic science. We've been back to ancient China to find out the origins of forensic thought. We've dropped in on London's most inaccessible museum, the Crime Museum, to trace the colonial origins of fingerprinting. And today, it's the turn of the lie detector. And for that, we are in America in the 1920s and the 1930s. Crime was high. The police were often corrupt, brutal or both. And the lie detector came from an earnest effort, at least, to use science, to harness science, to try and help. But the hunger for this machine to be something more than it actually was capable of being turned it into a Frankenstein's monster. There is no such thing as a lie detector, cried one of its creators, even as the invention was sweeping across America. My guest today is Amit Katwala, author of Tremors in the Blood, which is a new book about the birth of the polygraph. So get ready for some science some dodgy science, some true American eccentrics, and, crucially, Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. Amit, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. I went down a lie detector rabbit hole a few years ago. Subject I'm absolutely fascinated by, but I didn't know any of the history. Can I just ask, how did you go down that rabbit hole? Like, you're a psychologist, I know, and you're a tech writer, I know. What was the kind of thing for you that led you down that great opening? So it was in around 2017, 2018, I was watching the Netflix show Making a Murderer. It's a documentary and it's about this guy called Stephen Avery who gets wrongfully accused of murder. He says wrongfully accused on two separate occasions. So he spends 17 years in prison for a crime he doesn't commit, gets out and then immediately gets sent down for another murder. So anyway, in season two of that, he, to try and clear his name, he does a lie detector test called brain fingerprinting, which is based on brain scans. As you mentioned, I studied psychology and my initial reaction was one of extreme scepticism. I was like, there's no way this can possibly work. 
so I, I looked into it, I interviewed the creator and I did a piece about kind of new forms of lie detection that were being invented or have been invented in the last 10 or 20 years based on brain scans and artificial intelligence and things like that. But while I was researching that piece, I also came across this kind of amazing history of the lie detector and how it was initially created and all these mad true crime cases that it was involved in in the 1920s and 30s. Before we get into the history, I just want to ask, you know, you just talked about sort of brain scanning. I did an fMRI scan lie detector test the other day. And it was a really innocuous lie. You know, they, they said, just make something up. I didn't even say anything. Like, I was just in the scanner and they would say things and I could hear what they were saying. And they said, oh, the lie was that. I said I had a maths A-level and I didn't have a maths A-level. They kind of convinced me that it really works. You're saying maybe not. It's not so much a question of whether it works in the lab. The threshold that you have to reach if you want to be using these things in the real world is so much higher. Mm. It's all well and good to say, you know, we detected this guy lying in the lab with no stakes and, you know, no risk. But you don't know how that person's going to react under stress or... You know, a, a motivated liar with a lot to lose might react very differently to someone who's just trying the machine out for a bit of fun. And also then the accuracy rate. So yeah, say they get it like nine times out of 10, great. But one out of 10 is a very, very high error rate for something that could potentially be used to send people to prison or sentence them to death. We don't use lie detected polygraph tests, which rely on physiological responses to things or things like fMRI tests. None of those are at the moment used in criminal cases to convict someone based solely on that evidence? It depends where you go. So in the US, polygraphs are not admissible in court, but where they're often used is in the stages before a case goes to trial to try and extract a confession from a suspect. So often investigators will use polygraph tests as a way to sort of, you know, lean on potential suspects if they can get them to admit to having committed a crime during a polygraph test, then they don't have to go through the expense of actually taking them to trial. In the UK, in the same way, they're not used in courts, but they are used as part of parole hearings. So, for example, sex offenders or convicted terrorists are put through polygraph tests in the UK to test whether or not they've breached their parole conditions, whether or not their rehabilitation program is working. Okay, but if the science is a bit dodgy, what kind of weight do they carry? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I think the people I speak to assure me that it's you know only one part of a suite of various tools that they use to try and assess things. But the concern that some people have about lie detectors is that because they're so alluring and because it's presented as being so objective, you may end up weighing that more heavily than you should Yeah. versus, you know, gut feeling or other kind yeah. of more qualitative measurements. It seems to be there's a lot of psychology in the lie detector test, not the test itself, but our perceptions of the lie detector test it being a scary thing, us being obsessed by trying to get inside people's heads to understand what they're thinking, which presumably we've been doing since as long as humans have been on Earth. But there does seem to be a lot of mystery and bad science and superstition almost about the lie detector test. and How much of its power comes from yeah. the fact that we think it works. There's some great stories from you know the 80s and 90s of police departments using like a photocopy machine and pretending it was a lie detector yeah. <laughs> and putting a suspect's hand on it and then pressing a button and getting it to spit out bits of paper with, you know, he's lying written on it. You know, you don't actually have to have an actual polygraph to convince people that they've got a lie detector machine. I do a little bit of close-up magic now and again. And that whole idea of mentalist magic of trying to sort of you know get people to think things and magicians giving the over the illusion that they can look inside people's heads and understand what's going on human beings are very good at lying we lie from very early ages and so presumably trying to find ways of counter lying 
trying to understand lies goes back a long way. Where did the first kind of lie detection as an idea start from? How far back can we go? Like before we get into the technology. I mean, it goes back thousands of years. So there are stories from ancient China about lie detection methods based on getting people to chew grains of rice. So we've all experienced that kind of dry mouth adrenaline when we're about to be caught in a lie. So the theory is that if you get them to chew rice and the rice comes out dry and sticky, then their mouths are dry, therefore they were lying. There's this mad story from India where it basically involves like a donkey whose tail is covered in soot and then you send your two suspects in and say, pull on the donkey's tail and the donkey will reveal who's telling the truth and who's lying. And the idea being is that if the person who went into the dark room and came out without sit on their hands, didn't pull the donkey's tail because they were too worried about getting caught. So <laughs> that's another rudimentary form of lie detection. Yeah. Another thing I was reading, there was a 12th century medic who understood the pulse as a physiological response to stress. And he used a kind of pulse method to catch an infidelity between two people, which I thought was quite good as well. So we do seem to have these early proto-lie detectors tests. So just, just explain what a modern polygraph test is and what it looks like in terms of the kit. And then from there, we can go back in time to see where it originated from. Yeah, so a polygraph test today involves two main measurements. So it's a measure of your pulse and your blood pressure. So you'll have a blood pressure cuff around your arm like you might have at the doctor's. That will measure your pulse and blood pressure. Then you'll also have two tubes wrapped around your chest to measure your breathing rate. So that will measure how quickly and how often you're breathing in and out. Sometimes you'll also have a galvanic skin response, so like a sensor or electrode attached to your finger to measure how much you're sweating. Those are all attached to a machine that will translate it onto a computer screen where you see those kind of lines rising and falling like you might be familiar with. I should say that it's not just the equipment that's important, right? It's also the kind of software of the test. So the questioning process and the way that the testing procedure is kind of constructed because that's half the innovation around the polygraph as well. Tell us how that works. So if we were in a lie detector test session now, what would happen? So basically what you see on TV is probably wrong. Lie detector tests are a lot more boring and take... No way! TV wrong? (laughs) They take a lot longer than it appears on TV. So the process is you basically get control questions like, is your name Dallas? Or about what you had for lunch that day. And then you get target questions, which are about whether or not you committed the crime in question. And the idea is that you start off with a bunch of baseline control questions to get a sense of how your body responds when it's telling the truth. Then after you've settled down to the situation, then you start getting asked these target questions. And then the idea is that you can compare the responses to the target questions with the responses to the control questions. And if there are differences there, then that could be a sign that you are lying on certain questions. Well, let's go back to the beginning then. Let's start our little history into the into the sort of technology of the polygraph test. Where? How? <laughs> We're back in the 1920s, I think. Aren't yeah. So you mentioned your medic who had kind of come up with this idea of maybe pulse has something to do with people's emotions. So that was an idea that was studied throughout the you know 17th and 18th century by physiologists. And then in the 1910s, a guy called William Marston came up with this insight that blood pressure changed when people were lying so he was doing these kind of fairly rudimentary experiments he was a psychology student at harvard and he was doing these fairly rudimentary experiments on his peers where he got them to tell untrue stories and he just tracked their blood pressure as they were doing this why was he doing that was it kind of a byproduct or something else like other experiments or was he like right i want to see if i can find out how people are lying he had noticed that his wife's blood pressure went up when they were arguing. Uh, so that was his insight. <laughs> that's, 
Yeah, there was there was a whole kind of group of people in America at that time that were interested in physiology and, and criminology and this kind of overlap between law and psychology, going back to work from criminologists in Italy as well in the, in the kind of 18th and 19th century. So Marston was the kind of birth of the father of like the concept of lie detection, I guess. He was a really interesting character, actually. He went on to invent uh, Wonder Woman, the uh, comic book character. Wait, the cartoon? Yeah, who, if you remember, has a lasso of truth, right? This device that compels people to tell the truth. Oh, that's amazing fact. That's really cool. The lasso of truth, based on him having arguments with his wife. <laughs> a lasso of truth plus Wonder Woman. Based on him having arguments with his wives, actually. So the other interesting thing about Marston was that he was in a kind of three-way relationship with two women, which is obviously unheard of in the kind of 1920s and 30s, and basically lived as an equal partner, equal husband to, to both of these two women. And they, they had a very unusual relationship by the standards of the time. So... So Marston is, funnily enough, not actually a main character in my book because the, the actual, it goes on to be even crazier, even though we've already got this guy. Okay, that starts with a crazy story, which we love. Excellent. Next crazy story. Next, next crazy character. So in Berkeley in California in the 1920s, there was a kind of revolution of science-driven policing going on. So that was driven by this guy called August Vollmer, who was this like revolutionary police chief. He brought in cars and radios and crime tracking and... He also started hiring university students to work as police officers. So up until this point, police officers had been men in their kind of late 20s, early 30s who kind of smashed people's heads in and (laughs) took bribes and were fairly corrupt and violent. And Vollmer wanted to bring in a more kind of enlightened form of policing. So he hired all these university students. And one of the students he hired was a guy called John Larson. He was like a physiologist. He was in his late 20s and he wanted to become a criminologist. He was interested in the science of crime, trying to predict when people were going to commit crimes. So anyway, Volmer was sitting in his office in Berkeley Police Station one day and he came across an article by William Marston about this blood pressure test that he had developed. But then he kind of thought, well, you know, it's not very kind of scientific. He's just kind of using blood pressure and kind of just randomly checking the dial while these people are telling these untrue stories. So Volmer asked Larson to try and formalise this to try and develop a way that would be more objective and that could be used in criminal investigation. So that was the start of it. So Larson went away and he was working part-time at the physiology lab at the University of Berkeley and he cobbled together various instruments that were available there. So, you know, a blood pressure cuff, a pneumograph, which is the tube that measures your breathing rate. And then he got a lab technician to help him cobble it all together into this machine So it was like a wooden board, like a chopping board, and it had like a column rising from it with a bit of paper, black paper, wrapped around it, and then all these instruments coming off it attached by rubber tubing. But the the kind of heart of it was that there was these two styluses that would move up and down in time with a, a suspect's pulse and their breathing rate and scratch a white line against this black paper to show what their pulse and breathing rate were doing. So that's basically the crux of it that's the invention of the polygraph essentially right there and there are there any kind of stories about how it was tested like sort of test one what what so you're sitting in front of this board what do they kind of what kind of questions do they ask as you said it's not just the measurement devices that's important it's the way that you ask the questions and developing a, a methodology of of asking questions in a way that you, that you can interpret the results yeah so a lot of the early tests were done on young women at the university of berkeley like college dormitories basically again this comes back to that whole power imbalance thing <laughs> It sounds really dodgy. The whole thing sounds really dodgy. Well, wait, just wait. So the the first test uh, was done on a woman called Margaret Taylor. He was a student at a dorm at the University of Berkeley called College Hall. Taylor was had reported that a lot of her and her fellow students' belongings were going missing. So Taylor herself had lost like a diamond ring. Some of her fellow students had lost cash and clothes and things like that. 
So they called in the police to try and get to the bottom of this and they thought it would be a very good test case for the lie detector. So she was tested first because she was one of the victims and they wanted to kind of rule her out. So that was the first case that the polygraph was involved in. Actually, so there's this 19-year-old woman, Margaret Taylor. John Larson is the 29-year-old police officer who's running the investigation. Anyway, they hit it off and ended up getting married a year later. So um, so that's, uh, again, power imbalance. Fl- flirting, but with t- technology in a way. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that was the first case. So that was College Hall. And then they did a bunch more kind of college petty thefts and things like that in the first year. And then then started moving on to murder cases and things like that. So in order to move on to murder cases, presumably they had some kind of idea that this worked or the technology worked. Or was there a kind of progression from, okay, we've got this wooden chopping board with these basic rudimentary things. Was there a kind of progression of them getting better, more accurate or... How did it work? I mean, to be honest, the tech didn't really change much. The tech hasn't changed much since then, honestly. Well, that's what I was. Th- that's kind of what I was thinking because I've seen a polygraph test, and it is still a kind of rolling bit of paper with a needle that moves, and you've got things attached to your fingers and a and a cuff. And yeah, the, the, the premise of the test hasn't changed, and the, the the kind of the majority of the tech hasn't really changed either. I think Larson, as a person, got better at kind of conducting the tests. He he honed the software of the test a bit. You know, they got some early successes where people confessed to crimes or where the polygraph kind of found out things that ended up being true or backed up evidence that had been found elsewhere and, and tallied with what what they'd known. So I think they were pretty confident at that point. But, you know, I think there were probably cases that were less conclusive that got ignored or brushed under the carpet. How do we go from it being a sort of experiment in a, in a girl's dorm in, in Berkeley to actually then becoming a a tool used in trials and used in convictions? So the media has a large part to play in this. So the first big case that it was used in was a case, the murder of a priest by this kind of weird drifter called William Hightower. It was very obvious that Hightower had done it. He had written this like crazy ransom note and his handwriting was matched to the ransom note. He had bits of like bloody canvas in his apartment that matched canvas that was wrapped around the body. He was the one who found the body and led police to it. <laughs> he said, I did it. Yeah, some curious attempt to like claim the reward money for... Yeah, anyway, so he he was very guilty and they brought Larson in. So a strange thing that happened would happen with cases back then is that basically the police and the newspapers would kind of compete to like solve the case. So all the different newspapers are like trying to get scoops on like sensational murders and things like that. So they, and the police were also working at the same time. So I think one of the newspapers commissioned Larson to basically go along and do a lie detector test on on this guy. Uh, so the newspapers heard about it and then, oh, that's interesting, yeah. The, the lie detector test confirmed the other findings. Larson found that Hightower was probably guilty on the basis of the lie detector test. And, you know, he was convicted and he went to prison. And so it was a win for the lie detector in that sense. It wasn't used as part of his trial because it, didn't, it wasn't needed because there were so much other more established forms mm. of evidence. So... But it, it certainly confirmed the suspicions that the police had at the time. I suppose the question that everyone asks about sort of lie detectors when this comes up is like, can you can you fake it? I mean, I read things about oh well, people put pins in their shoes in order to you know stimulate a response when questions are asked. Yeah, you certainly can. You certainly can. So th- these are called countermeasures, and you can train to beat a lie detector test. So it's just about controlling your emotion either by ramping up your response to the control questions. So that when the target questions come along, they're not different. So you can do that by stepping on a pin hidden in your shoe to give you a jolt of pain. You can do it by taking stimulants like caffeine or or something stronger to mess with your physiological response so that you become harder to read. There's no indication that polygraphs would even work on everyone. You know, if you are a psychopath, 
there's no reason to think that you might feel emotional and for the, at the same questions. Why would you? Like, if you if you feel no remorse for what you've done, then there's no real reason to think that you would have an emotional response to questions. And presumably, like, I don't know, if, if, if you've done something and you genuinely don't know you've done it, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a scenario, which I now can't. But if you're, you know, if you were in a different state and you didn't know you did it, then presumably it's not, it's only a lie if you know that you're telling her. And equally, like what you believe to be true might not be true, right? So that's the other thing. And, you know, ultimately it relies on fear. And if you're not scared, then it won't work on you, right? Is that how a lie detector test actually works? It's the fact that it is kind of, you're going to, that fear that one gets about having one's lies uncovered or found out. There is something quite sinister about some, about a piece of technology that can actually look inside your brain. Given that we have such, you know, we have private lives. We like to think we have our own kind of internal monologue, which nobody can touch. And the idea of technology or an authority or somebody that can actually peer inside your soul, which is kind of what you're doing, is uh, is kind of a bit creepy. Yes, it's scary. Yeah, it's one of those classic things where technology is probably raced ahead of our on our ethical ability to comprehend what computers or you know machines kind of claim to be able to do now. We'll be back after this short break. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So tell us about, so there's some other cases as well. So if Hightower is our case one, just take us through some other notable lie detector cases of the period. So one of the cases that I focus on in the book, the book is the first time the story's really been told in as much detail. This is the case of Henry Wilkins. He was a mechanic in San Francisco. He was accused of plotting his wife's murder. He and his wife were driving home from a camping trip. They were pulled over by bandits. His wife got shot in the ensuing struggle. And it transpired over the following weeks that Henry had been behaving very suspiciously and it it looked like he might have something to do with his wife's death, but the police didn't have any evidence. He was refusing to confess, so they called in John Larson to do the polygraph test on Henry Wilkins. So there's this crazy case with all these kind of twists and turns and stuff, but the... Henry ends up passing the polygraph test. He went to trial after the polygraph test. He was acquitted. So, you know, in in the eyes of history that will go down as polygraph is correct <laughs> you know you know what i mean that goes down as a, that goes down in the success column right the polygraph's verdict tallied with the verdict of the jury at the trial the question you have to ask yourself is given the vast amount of evidence suggesting that he was involved was the polygraph actually right in this scenario i mean and john larson was so convinced that henry wilkins was guilty that he basically wouldn't give it up he was still writing about the case 10, 15 years later, he tried to convince him to take another polygraph test. He convinced him to get injected with like this truth serum to try and you know prove <laughs> that he was guilty. So Larson was like convinced that the test had gotten it wrong, even though he was the inventor of the test, which I think is really interesting. So I kind of wanted to focus on this because I think it's one of the first times that the polygraph really failed. And it also like foreshadowed a lot of what was to come over the following decades and some of the problems and the big issues with the machine and things like that. And it set 
the inventors of the polygraph on this slightly wayward path where one of them ended up kind of thinking of the machine as being like this Frankenstein's monster, you know, what have I done type thing, while the other one was like trying to commercialize it and make as much money out of it as possible. That's really a truth serum. Goodness, there's another kind of trope in, you get in TV shows and, and, and old-fashioned movies. It does seem that we are obsessed by tr- ways of extracting the truth from people. And one thing I sort of get from you and your thing is that it's basically bollocks, the polygraph test and the lie detector test. Is that fair enough? Is, you know, there is no such thing really as a foolproof lie detector. Yeah, so I mean, I think... <laughs> The problem, the problem is, you know, these are all measurement tools. There's a quote from Leonard Keeler, who's one of the inventors of the lie detector, that... Who's Leonard Keeler? He... So, actually, we should probably talk about Leonard Keeler. So, John Larson invented this lie detector machine at the kind of behest of his boss, August Vollmer, who was the police chief. Trying to revolutionise the police force. Exactly. And then Keeler was this high school student who was, like, family friends with the chief of police, with Vollmer, who basically turned up at the police department in Berkeley as like a 16 year old because he was off school because he'd been he'd been ill the previous year or whatever and became obsessed with the lie detector and became John Larson's protege assistant kind of person to start with so they drove around California together you know running cases and things like that and then while Larson kind of grew a bit more sort of hesitant and reluctant around the machine because of cases like the Henry Wilkins case, Keeler just went off and commercialised it. He's the one who really spread it around the world. Larson was a scientist. He wanted to be very careful and cautious. He wanted to verify everything. Keeler was a showman. You can draw the, a line from Keeler to Jerry Springer, to Jeremy Kyle, to, you know, lie detectors as entertainment. He was the one. And they had a spectacular falling out as a result of this. They ended up absolutely hating each other. They wrote poisonous letters back and forth and Larson just ended up loathing his former protege he was the one who you know he thought that he'd invented this machine that had the potential to really be a force for good he thought that Keeler had prostituted the machine had turned it into this kind of Frankenstein's monster turned it into theatre I suppose and it's done very well in theatre you know it's become a great dramatic device in tv shows and, and, and movies and that kind of thing will we ever I mean, we've mentioned okay polygraph functional MRI AI is the other great tool. Is AI ever going to be used as a way of eliciting the truth? Yeah, so there are, te- there are a bunch of projects that are attempting to use artificial intelligence. So in the same way that the polygraph combined all these different measurements, some projects are trying to use AI to combine lots of different measurements to create a kind of overall low score for lying. So it's looking at things mm. like your voice, your pupil dilation, your the movement of kind of tiny muscles in your face and things like that. So I went to see a demonstration of a AI-based lie detector called Silent Talker, which literally records a video of someone talking and there's a dial that swings from red to green, depending on how much it thinks they're lying. There was another one where it's kind of based on pupil dilation. And the theory is that if you're thinking harder, your pupils dilate more so that you can pick this up and then it uses AI to kind of analyze, okay, well... Your pupils are dilating, you know, a fraction more on this question or these set of questions. So therefore, you might have been lying on that one. You know, AI lie detection is being used. It's being rolled out. It's coming to the borders. There's a couple of trials using using AI-based lie detectors at, at border control to try and sniff out illegal immigrants or terrorists or whatever it might be. Oh, my God. <laughs> but again, it's that thing. And when I'm at border control and, you know, you have to put your thumbprints on the doodah, 
I always I always have a physiological response of kind of fear. And I do that stupid thing because especially when you're going to America, they're very, very serious at border control and they ask you all these questions. And I just start freaking out and I and I start to make jokes. And that's the worst thing you can do to America, you know. And then I start sweating and then I feel really guilty about past crimes that I haven't committed. So I don't know, the needle would be sort of presumably swinging all over the place. They claim to be, you know, 85, 90% accurate, but... Again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier. It's not great if you're someone's on death row. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, what, what is the bar we're aiming for here? And also, like, if you're running screening tests, you're trying to sniff out, you know, one person in 10,000 or one person in 100,000 who might be a criminal at an airport or someone trying to sneak into the country illegally or whatever it might be. You're going to get so many false positives. It basically makes the test worthless. If your accuracy rate is 90% and you're testing 1,000 people, one of whom is guilty, you're going to arrest 99 innocent people for every one person you catch. What do you think the future is of, of this? Do you think our obsession with, you know, we just really want to be able to, to design this kind of technology. It's in our fiction. It's in our science fiction. Do you think it has a future or do you think it'll always be slightly shadowed by d- daft science? I think both. I mean, I think one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is that there are so many parallels between what happened in the 1920s and 1930s and the inventions that are being created today. The inventors are just as flawed. They're making the same mistakes. They're getting too close to their suspects and all that kind of thing. But I still think they'll be part of the conversation, not necessarily as an actual tool for genuinely detecting lies, but as a tool for governments who want to look tough on crime. Like we know the polygraph doesn't work, but you know, in the last couple of years, there's been expansion of the use of polygraphs in the UK, for instance, because it's a very, very easy way to say, we're taking action against criminals. We're subjecting them to, you know, lie detector tests and it looks harsh and it looks authoritarian and it doesn't really work, but it doesn't need to work because the working, it's doing the job of making the government of the day, and I should say this is government of all stripes, um, look tough on crime. There's a political backstory when when polygraph becomes sort of popular and mainstream again. That- Definitely. Like polygraphs get targeted at the sort of scapegoats of the day. You know, during the Red Scare of the Cold War and McCarthyism and all that, they were targeted at potential, you know, suspected communists. After 9-11, there was a big focus towards using them on asylum seekers and, and things like that. In fact, after 9-11, funding for brain-based lie detectors kind of shot up. That's the one event that really kick-started the new wave of lie detectors. That's really interesting. I love looking at technology through the lens of politics. And um, My favourite takeaway fact, though, of course, is the polygraph takes straight to Wonder Woman and her lasso <laughs> of truth. <laughs> I think that is a lovely thing, which I've never heard before, which is terrific. Amit, thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. That's it. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Our mini-series on forensics finishes next week with an episode about DNA fingerprinting. But before that, we've got an episode, one that I've been looking forward to doing forever, and it's about the history of recorded sound, which is a story that's fascinated me for for a long, long time. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Don't forget, as ever... Leave a review. People always ask you to leave reviews and subscribe, and I always feel a bit guilty doing it because I know your time is valuable and you probably don't want to, but I'm going to ask you anyway. It helps others find the show. It helps us know that you've been listening. And don't forget, if you've got an invention story or an idea or a, a cultural oddity, whatever it might be, you would like us to cover in the show. If you'd like us to understand where that thing came from, then get in touch and we will stick it on the list. 
and I look forward to your company next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.